Good morning. Well, that was awkward. Hope y'all are doing well. I almost broke Jordan's guitar. That would have been bad. So, we are in the book of Acts. So, if you have a Bible while you're flipping there, just a couple uh, things I'll tell you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Uh, while you're flipping there, I'll bring you up to date on things that are going on. Uh, I'm glad to be back, glad to be preaching. I feel like I haven't preached in forever. Uh, I think it's maybe about five or six or seven weeks, something like that. Thank you, Joe and Jack, again for uh, preaching to the, uh, to the church while I was gone. Um, but we are home, finally, with Evangeline again. Uh, we had to go back. I don't know if y'all knew that when we came back. We had to go back again because she had a pneumonia. We had to go to the uh, ER, et cetera, and all that. Um, and we have been doing lots of doctor's appointments. Uh, we had three last week and two more next week and two more week after that, two more, things like that. Um, she's got, as you know, if you haven't been here, she, my, my, uh, one of my children that was just born, the last one, <laughs> has trisomy 13. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of different specialists now, um, different specialists, eyes, uh, lungs, uh, sleep apnea, heart, GI, ear, brain, throat, and her regular pediatrician. She's got some kind of malformed, it's called malacia or something like that in her throat. Causes her to breathe like Darth Vader. So we're going to be Darth Vader for Halloween. Um, You got a joker, it's just, you know, you can't get through it. Um, So anyway, uh, so she's got another couple surgeries coming up. Uh, Not another couple, but about two surgeries coming up in the next month or so. Um, one will be for her eyes. They're, they're really small, but the doctors think that she can maybe have vision. Uh, so they're sending us to Charleston, provided that everything goes well, they send us to Charleston. There's like a really, really good surgeon in Charleston, uh, that will, she has cataracts. So it was funny whenever we went to the uh, doctor, they sent us to the geriatric area. And so like they, we usually see really old people, but there's a baby and they loved it. And so, um, they're all excited to see uh, us in the geriatric eye, eye area. And then um, she'll have that eye surgery and then a throat surgery that will correct, correct her. She has a soft palate in the back where she doesn't swallow very well. And if she ever starts talking, um, it'll sound weird. And so that would correct that and hopefully also correct some of the, the things in her throat. So we have lots of doctor's appointments, et cetera, coming up and a couple surgeries coming up and probably in the next couple months. So uh, just to bring us all up to date, if you follow, follow my wife on Facebook or follow, or is it called follow? I don't know. I don't have Facebook, whatever it's called. She puts uh, updates and things that are going on. But if you don't, uh, then I just wanted to make sure you all know. So if you pray for Evangeline, please keep praying for her. Uh, pray that she won't get sick um, in the next few months for sure. Pray that she'll continue to eat and not throw up anymore. Uh, and then pray that these surgeries that she'll actually be able to do them, and then when she's able to do them, that she'll be okay through them. So uh, that's the uh, Evangeline update on, on what's going on now. Uh, I'll try to do those every once in a while, um, uh, although I don't want to make it all about me and Evangeline and, and Christy, etc. So that's what's going on. So what are we doing right now? Um, this is what we're doing. So on April the 24th, 2016, we started the book of Acts. Did you know that? And... Uh, it's been about two years. For that first year, we just plowed straight through, um, and then we're like, man, it's a lot of acts. And so we decided to take a few breaks, and so as we saw Paul plant the church in Corinth, we went and uh, went through the, the, 
the Corinthians, and then as we saw Paul kind of plant the church with uh, Ephesians and then interact with them until the very end of chapter 20 where Paul had that meeting with the Ephesian elders on the island of Miletus uh, or down south from Ephesus. Uh, we saw his interactions with them at the end of chapter 20, then we went to, and went through the book of Ephesians. Um, so that's what we've done. And then Jack last week uh, and the week before preached a two-week series on fighting sin. And so now uh, we're back to the book of Acts, starting at Acts chapter 21. Uh, If you don't know what's going on uh, in in Acts chapter 21, we've seen Paul uh, on his first first and second uh, missionary journey, and we've been on his third missionary journey, uh, and he's he's at the tail end of it. So what we're going to see today is the end of his third missionary journey when he leaves the Ephesian elders at the island of Miletus, and he sails back all the way to Jerusalem, delivering the money that he had had, uh, collected on the way. To, de- to deliver to Jerusalem um, <clears throat> to uh, those that were poor in-, in Jerusalem. So we're finishing the third missionary journey today. Uh, so um, the text that we're going to look at is largely a, a travel narrative. It's just Luke wanting us to get to Jerusalem. So he, he kind of gives us the travel, I- travel itinerary. It's more, they would call it a bridge text. Uh, so there's important information here and there's important information here. But in order to get through the narrative to the next place, Paul, Luke inserts this bridge, which just gives us the tribal itinerary so we know how he got from the island of Miletus down to Jerusalem. However, even though it's a bridge text, there's some things in there that I want us to see that I think will be uh, good for us, especially kind of just in light of everything that's going on in my life, etc. So um, let's all stand, if you're able to, and look at Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, 1 through 16. And after I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. And you're doing a couple things when you do that. Number one, you're just thanking the Lord, the obvious thing. Thanking the Lord, he'd be so kind and gracious to speak to us and give, it to, give us his word. But a secondly, uh, perhaps you could be doing this as well. You could be in your heart and your mind saying, Lord, the things I see and hear in your word this morning, I want to obey them. I want to, I want to soak in them. I want to believe them and trust you and say yes to them and leave here wanting to live my life for you. So as you say that, realize you're saying thanks, but you're also submitting your heart unto his word as we, as we stand under it this morning, or sit under it this morning. So uh, Acts chapter 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them, we set sail, and we came by a straight course to cause. Now, they're, they're leaving the Ephesian elders, if you're wondering. Uh, and it says, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there, Patara, and having found, found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come to the side of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was a ship to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the... And, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Uh, when our days there ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us out, outside of the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on aboard the ship, and they returned home. Having finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at uh, Ptolemus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. This is from Acts chapter 8, one of the seven, one of the seven first 
deacons-ish if, that were picked. Uh, it said, Philip the evangelist, who were one of the seven, and stayed with him. For he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him in the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have a seat. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have been so kind and gracious as to give us your word. And even travel itineraries from Miletus to Jerusalem have uh, eternal significance in our hearts and minds and our lives. Have immediate tangible significance in the life of our church here at Remedy. And we pray that as we see this and as we study your word this morning, that you would do an amazing work in the lives of this people. That they would have and grow a deep love for each other as we see here in this text. And God, that we would uh, see and understand the good news of Jesus even more. That Jesus has called us friend. And so because of that, um, we are now free to love each other in amazingly deep ways. I pray that you help me speak uh, truth this morning, all the things that would be helpful and true that you want me to say. Holy Spirit, would you come now and fill me and help me say those things, the things that that you want to keep me from. Uh, Don't let me say those things, God. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Jerry Coleman, Mike DeZenzo, Ted Rose, Brian Davis, also known as Jughead, and even a guy named Spinner. There's lots of people from this area that I, I, from this time frame that I know. Andy Green, Corey Singleton, Ryan Falls, Kelly Graham, Jason Wilson, Jack Blankenship, Noah Joyner, Jeff Doyle, Christian Tyler, uh, Chris Curriger, the McGarrities, the Browns, the Powells, Stephen Pappas, Brian Lowe, Dwayne Bond, Stephen Wagner, Cameron, Ben, Jack Blankenship again. Um, Joe Mueller, Jordan, Lukens, and the list goes on and on since I've been here at Remedy. This is kind of an unpacking of the last 25 years of significant people that God has brought into my life at certain times in my life. As a 43-year-old now, I've looked back as uh, I've lived in about four or five different cities over a number of years. And as I've looked back, God has placed me in a groups and, and collection of people. And inside those collections of people, there are people that kind of simmer up to the top and if if I didn't name your name and you're here with me, I meant to and I just ran out of time on listing names and I figured you'd only listen to names for a certain amount of time. Um, but my point is that uh, God has done this. Uh, as you get older, you'll recognize this, that there's, there's times where you can look back now as an adult to where he's put you in little sections of groups of people. For me, it was University of South Carolina, then Charleston Southern, then Camp McCall, then Northbridge Baptist Church, and then Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And then while I was there, also North Wake Church, and then also put me into the Camp Somersault time, or, and then TKK Baptist Youth, and now 
uh, Remedy Church in Acts 29. And so there's these little groups of people over the last 25 years that God has stuck me into and let me do life with for a certain amount of time. Uh, and then at the, after a certain amount of time, there's people that kind of simmer up to the top that become really significant friends. Uh, and then after that, uh, those times end, they move, I move, something happens. And then there's another group. And there's been group after group. And as I've grown, as I've aged, I've realized um, that this is all the design of God. What I've come to learn is that he has done this on purpose, that he puts us in uh, to groups of people where people start playing a very significant role in my life as friends. Um, and sometimes they move out uh, of town or they move to another, uh, another city and they, we stay in somewhat contact and sometimes some of those people we stay in less contact. Uh, but at some points in my life, these people have been really significant pe- people in my life. Uh, and so this might also be the case for you. You've had groups of people that have been significant parts in your life where you can look back and as you age, you'll start looking back at your life in groups of, of five to ten year chunks and you'll see, wow, there was a group of people that I really hung out with and I've kept in contact with some or I really haven't and man, those people were significant but now I've got a new group and now I've got a new group and all of our life is going to be this, continually having a new group about every five to ten years, or maybe longer, if the Lord were that you stay in one place longer, of significant friends, significant friends that grow up or, or that you're able to do life with. Um, and while you're here at Remedy Church, whether you've been here for a long period of time or a short period of time, as I've been pastoring here, I've had significant friends that have come here and some that have moved away to other cities and even some that have come back. That's been a blessing from the Lord to get to have people come back to Remedy. Um, and as you look back at your life, this is going to be the thing that's going to happen with you. And you'll wonder, you'll wonder, um, why did they leave? What's going on with them now? Why did God have them in my life? What was I to learn from that? What was, what was it that was going on there? Now, as we look at Acts 21, 1 through 16, the main point of the text is not friendship, although I'm going to draw a lot of things from that. The main point of the text, as I've already said, is it's a bridge text. It says, Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's warning us to see, Luke's warning us to see how Paul's interactions from the Ephesian elders uh, and when they were praying together and kneeling together and Paul's given them lots of exhortations from verse 36 through 38. Uh, Luke's warning us to see how he got from there all the way to Jerusalem. And he also wants us to see that people are warning him. Uh, hey, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, things are going to go bad for you. They're going to arrest you. You're, they're going to likely eventually get, get hurt. That's the main point that we're, these want us to see, that Luke's moving the narrative along to Jerusalem, and he's wanting us to see that, that prophecy of imprisonment in verse, of, in verse 11, and uh, Paul's response to that prophecy of imprisonment, which is, Lord's will be done. Lord's will be done. So as we're looking at that, we certainly can um, draw some things out for us, and I will do that as we're going. But let me, I've got my trusty map up here. Let's go ahead and put it up so we can really see what's, what's happening here. Because as we name some of these areas and you're seeing them, you're like, I don't know these places. Um, so we're picking up right here at Miletus. So we, we've done most of the missionary journey. He's had his Ephesian uh, meeting. He's going to Cause, Rhodes, Patara, 
and he's going to sail, and he's going to come to Tyre, which is really close to Jerusalem. And it's going to say in the text that he's going to go up to Jerusalem. And you're like, well, if he's in Caesarea and he goes up to Jerusalem, that seems south. That doesn't seem up. It's because there's a mountain in Jerusalem, and he's down in Caesarea, and he's going up into there. So um, they're talking more topographical, not geographical. And so that's, that's kind of where we're going to get is to Jerusalem today. Uh, and we're going to see how Paul interacts with people. And as he's going along... Uh, He's going to interact with people. He's going to, as he interacts with people, um, embedded in this text, Luke's highlighting not just the traveling notes, uh, but he's, tra- he's highlighting the care that people have for Paul and his companions as they are gra- going through these different places. And so what I want to do is note those things. I want to note those things for us because maybe uh, the impressions that have kind of uh, I've had over the, or the experiences I've had over the last six weeks have made me see just how important groups of friends are. People that care about you, people that want to care for you, and people that want to help you. Maybe, maybe it's because of that, or maybe it's just because as I saw that, God wants me to really kind of cram it into my really thick skull, so he makes me preach on it, uh, so I won't forget it. Uh, and so I want us, you to see those things, and I want you to see these things in this text. So as we begin Luke 21, let me begin with, you'll never guess, you got it, the gospel. So uh, in John chapter 15, in John chapter 15, it says this, uh, starting at verse 12, starting at verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Now, We can read that as we show our love towards one another by laying down our life in a metaphorical sense, uh, helping others, spending our lives to help other people for friends that are ours, doing all kinds of things when they're in need. But there's a greater sense of what we're talking about here. Uh, When we say greater love has no one this, that someone lays down his life for his friend. This is what Christ has done for us. He has willingly laid down his life on the cross, and when that happened, we are now called friends of God. Read, read with me. Greater love has no one this, uh, that someone lays down his life for, my friend, for his friends, and he says, you are my friends, which he's going to lay down his life, and we have become friends of God because he has died for us on the cross. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants does not know what his master is doing, but now I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father have made known to you. Do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask um, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command that you may love one another. So even from that text, we're seeing that Christ laid down his life for us, his friends. Jesus has given his life on the cross that we can now be forgiven of all of our sin. And as we've been forgiven of all our sin, we're now called a friend of God. And now that we're called friends of God, he's brought into our lives other people that are also friends of God, children of God, and they're our friends. Um, Sometimes when you look around here, you should be amazed at this. You should think to yourself, I wonder if I would have ever met this person and been their friend had it not been the fact that they love Jesus and I love Jesus and we came to the same church and then we started hanging out. This is really unlikely. It's really, really unlikely that we would have hung out with each other uh, and just found each other in Rock Hill and then become friends and, 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 and do stuff together. It's because of Christ precisely that we are not just hangout buddies, but friends. We're friends with one another. 
precisely because Christ has made us his friend, now we have Christian friendships built in this church. And so when I'm saying Christian friendship, I'm not just meaning regular secular friendships. I'm saying Christian friendships. There's some distinctions that I want to make sure we see about Christian friendships, which we'll get to in the text um, in Acts 21. But some other things I want you to uh, remember about the gospel and how it relates to friendship. That now that we're forgiven of our sin and we're made friends of God, we are able to make friends now and tell them of the forgiveness they can have from Christ. And we make friends and we extend the forgiveness that we've received from Christ whenever we're interacting with people that are our friends, especially Christians, we extend the same kind of forgiveness to them. When It's inevitable when two sinners are living life together, whether it be in the same home as husband and wife or just two friends uh, and they've known each other for 20 years, it's inevitable that they're going to sin against each other. And so the gospel teaches us as Christian friends that we extend forgiveness to each other in the same way that Christ has forgiven us. We can also see that the gospel teaches us that we're no longer servants, but we're now friends of God. And our relationship with God is not one of master-servant. It is in a sense, of course, he's our master and we serve him. But it's also father-child. Now he calls us friends. He calls us his children. And so now we're free, free in all of our friendships that we have with other people. um, That we're not in some kind of powerful hierarchy structure with others. But instead, we live now as sisters and brothers with each other. We love love each other deeply as friends uh, with each other. The gospel teaches us that. It also, uh, Tim Keller says it this way about uh, the need for friends as we grow. In other words, as we grow in our faith, we understand that maturity means that we need more people in our lives. Keller says, to need and to want deep spiritual friendships is not a sign of spiritual immaturity, but of maturity. It's not a sign of weakness, but a sign of health. The more you're growing in your relationship with Christ, the more you should see need for deep spiritual friendships. And the gospel also helps us see that we're part of the family business. Um, We take up our dad's business now, namely, inviting other people to be a part of this family and become our friends. We fulfill the Great Commission. So the gospel has uh, many implications about friendship that we can see from John 15. But as we look at this particular text here, uh, there's four, I think, four healthy kind of expressions of Christian friendships in this text that we see. So let's, let's look at these. Acts chapter 21, verse 1. Uh, we see, and as, remember, they had just finished the Ephesian uh, elder time in Acts 20, and it says, and when we parted from them, that's literally as we tore ourselves apart from them, uh, we set sail and came by straight to set course to cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and we can see they're giving us all these things, but I want you to see uh, a little pattern that plays itself out in these 16 verses. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Having sought the disciples... They sought out disciples, they sought out Christians, and we stayed there with them for seven days. Go to verse 7. And we finished the voyage of Tyre, arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted brothers. Same thing as disciples, and we stayed with them for one day. Go to verse 8. And the next day we came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, which was a Christian from uh, from chapter 8, one of the seven, and we stayed with him. Verse 16. And the... And some of the disciples from Caesarea brought us to the house of Manasseh in Cyprus, an early disciple, and there uh, with whom we should lodge. So we see this pattern in Tyre and in Ptolemus and Caesarea and J- Jerusalem. They sought out brothers. They sought out Christians. They sought out Philip the evangelist. They sought out people they knew they were believers. And what did they do? They stayed with them. They stayed with them. They stayed. We lodged with them. There's this little pattern that's going on here. Uh, as Christians, 
whether they have known each other for maybe a short time or a long time. Luke does not give us the details on that, although I would think verses five and six, when they walked him out to the beach and prayed with him, there had been some kind of uh, personal deep friendship that, that had happened, at least in the city of Tyre, uh, that they had some friendships. But what we can see is this. Although we don't know the level of friendship Paul had with everybody in verses one through 16, we can deduce that he had good friendships with these people and there's a common thread running through that there's uh, Christian friendship here. And in this Christian friendship, the first thing we should see is that there's, uh, uh, their Christian friendship is characterized by, by practicing hospitality. Practicing hospitality. So the first thing I want you to see is this. You can go ahead and put it up. Christian friendships are characterized by practicing hospitality. Every city that they went into, they sought out Christians, and there they stayed with them, whether it be for a week, whether it be for a day, or whether it be for some period of time, they practiced hospitality. So what is biblical hospitality? It doesn't mean that you just put out some chips when people come over, and hopefully they can eat some of your food, right? That's not it, right? There's more to it. Hospitality, biblically, practicing hospitality means to have a love for strangers, have a love for meeting new people. It means that you also share your resources with these people. This is biblical hospitality. That you love strangers, you love meeting new people, and that as when you do that, you desire to share your resources with them. This means that as Christians age, or as Christians get older, they should not, finding them, they should not find themselves as, they, as Christians age, as non-Christians age, they will find this, but as Christians age, we should not find ourselves settling in on a few friends, and those few people are only the people that we hang out with. As we age, Christians especially age, more and more hospitality should should be practiced, and we should find ourselves having a deeper love for strangers, a deeper love for meeting new people, a deeper love for inviting them into our lives, into our homes, and being able to share our resources with them. Uh, That we should see... uh, wanting to hang out with more and more people. At its core, this is what biblical hospitality is. It's a love for meeting new people and becoming friends with new people. Now, this is a very tough word for a getting close to middle age introvert. That's me. Uh, very tough word because I don't want to do that. Like, there's nothing in me that wants to do that. I just want to be by myself and not meet new people and not share my resources and just you know, if I could, I'd go sit in the woods and hunt deer all day. That's what I do. Or go sit on the boat and, and fish, and that's it. I would hang out with no one and read and be by myself. But um, that, that's bad, right? Nonetheless, these things are true. Practicing biblical hospitality shapes me and changes me to say, I don't settle in on just these few friends as I age, and that's going to be my friends. Instead, it opens my heart up to say, Who else, God, should be in my life? Who else should be in my life? Who else do you want me to know and and, and hang out with. Now, for some, this can be difficult. If you're introverted, it's difficult, but also it can be, it can be difficult for, for people that have felt the sting uh, of having people that they were close to uh, move away. And so you're just like, I don't know if I can do that again. Like, I was so close and I hung out with them, or perhaps pass away. Uh, and you were so um, invested in them, and whenever they left or whenever they passed away, the, the, your heart hurt so bad that recuperating from that took some time. And you're like, I don't know if I can do that. But the thing is, is that we are made for community. God designed us to continually be in community. And here's the thing. I would say this. Not having friends is just as equally hard uh, on the heart as losing longtime friends. So losing longtime friends can hurt, but not having friends long-term can be just as bad on your heart. You have to have them. God has designed you for them. 
And so this means that we practice hospitality. It means that our house isn't just a refuge, right? It's not just, it can be a refuge. Sometimes I just need to go home and be away from people. Uh, But our house isn't just a refuge, but it's also a gift. A gift that the Lord has given us to share with people and invite people not just into our house to eat our food, but instead into our lives that we gladly welcome new people into our family, new people into our lives. And so the first thing that we see from this text as Paul's on this this, missionary journey back to Jerusalem is that Christian friendships are characterized by practicing hospitality. Paul saw this over and over as he's going from house to house. They invite him in, feed him, hang out with him, talk with him, pray with him, do all these kinds of things. Um, The second thing is this. Um, Christian friendships are exemplified by having true affections for one another. Number two, you go ahead and put it up. Christian friendships are exemplified by having true affections for one another. As we see Paul leaving the city of Ephesus, um, notice what's going on. I want to read this again just in case, you know, I don't know when it was. It was like three months ago or whatever it was, whenever we saw verse 36. And when he had said these things, he prayed with them. They knelt down and they prayed with them all. And after that, it says, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Uh, And being sorrowful because most of them, uh, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. Uh, the word that he spoke to them was in verse 22. He said, now I am going to Jerusalem contrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me. So he knew that the Lord was leading him by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, even though it would be dangerous, even though likely as we see prophecies coming, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested, Paul. But he knows the Lord's leading him to go there. And so he's obeying that. And so his friends had deep affections for them. And when they hear these things, they were moved by this. They, they wept. They embraced him. They kissed him. Uh, they, they didn't want him to go. And so we see uh, that this didn't just happen in, in something that was overnight. This display of affection that Paul has for his companions and his companions and the elders of Ephesus have for him, uh, it's remarkable. And it didn't happen overnight. It happened over Paul pouring his life into the Ephesians for at least three years doing life together. Struggling through things, crying together, praying together, uh, going through their all the things that happen in their life together, whether they have a baby, lose a baby, uh, or lose a loved one, or fight sin, kill sin, uh, see people get saved, do ministry together. They, all these things did, Paul did with them for three whole years, and they grew together in love for each other. And as Paul's leaving, you can see it puts on display true affections. They were sorrowful because they knew they wouldn't see him again. They had deep love for him. So we are also in our lives to have true affections for people. We're to develop these real true affections. Now, I'm not saying that every time you see people, you have to kiss them. The Bible does say, greet one another with a holy kiss. Maybe that just means in 2018, uh, a, good, a good Christian side hug. I don't know. Like, it, you know what I mean? Like it, it, but there is something to this, right? There's something to this of not just saying, I have a lot of affection for you, but also showing it in some kind of tangible way. Showing it in some kind of tangible way that's still, you know, modest and God-glorifying and appropriate. Um, But we can even see in verses five through six as well, as Paul's leaving uh, Tyre, it says, when our days were ended, we departed, we went for our journey. uh, And it says this, they all, with wives and children, accompanied us all the way outside of the city. They walked them all the way to the beach and watched them get on the boat, basically, and they said farewell to them. 
and we're bringing everybody. And as we're, we're going to pray for you here on the beach with all of our kids running around and screaming, but everybody loves you, and we're going to see you off. And then as you go, uh, we're going to go back. So these are true affections being put on display by these amazing gestures that they're showing to Paul. So what we can see is this, is that there are real affections that they have for each other. And even in Caesarea, in verse 12, when they heard this prophecy, they, it says, when we heard this, we and the people, that's Luke, urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Why would they urge? They didn't care. They'd be like, well, it's your funeral, buddy. Have fun. I don't know why you got to do that. But because they loved him, they had true affections, it, it manifests itself by saying, no, Paul, be careful. Don't even go. We'll, we'll get to that later. But my whole point is this, is that we see real affections for them. Uh, whenever you're not with these people, this means that whenever, whenever you have true friendships, whenever you're not with these people for an extended period of time, your heart starts to ache to be back around them. Like, I need to be with them. Or when you're with them and they're going through just terrible stuff in life, you love them so much that you hurt with them as they go through it. You just have real affections for people. Uh, the same way that you should feel for your spouse, that should even manifest itself in, in, in friendships. You should have deep love for people, that you care about them and you want to be with them. And whenever they hurt, they hurt. And you, you, dis, you display these affections for them too. So that's the second thing. Third thing is this. Um, third thing is that Christian friendships are embodied by continually praying together. Continually praying together. Um, we see it in 36 that they knelt down and they prayed. And we see it, as I just talked about in Tyre, uh, whenever they were leaving, that they, they prayed together on the beach there at the very end of verse 5. We went to the beach, we prayed and said farewell. So uh, this isn't, I don't think, that Paul's just saying, well, um, this is a thing that we're supposed to do since we're parting ways. Let's pray. It is that, but I think it's more than that. I think that... Uh, it would have just been really out of place. Like, hey, we've never prayed together, but since we're parting ways, let's just pray together right now before I leave. I don't think that's what's going on. I think this was an ongoing practice that Paul always had with all of his friends, that whenever he was with them for the long period, he would pray, 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 pray with them all the time. And then even as they're leaving, let's make sure we pray one last time. It wasn't just a, we've never prayed together, but let's just do this since I'll never see you again. And I think that's the case for us. This means... Uh, of course, that we pray. Let me make sure we hear this. This means, of course, we pray for each other. But more than that, it means we pray with each other. So, of course, like, um, whenever people are praying uh, for us and people have sent us constant uh, messages, hey, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. I love that. And man, please keep doing that. But it's not just that. It means that we pray with each other. Um, one commentator says this, uh, in regard to prayer and its absolute power that it has and the display that you can tell people of how much you care about them, the references to prayer here are not incidental. Everyone was fully aware of the difficulties that were facing Paul at Jerusalem. They were also aware that prayer was the disciples' best fortification in a time of suffering and trial. So whenever you tell someone that you're praying for them, it's not like, well, all I can do is pray for you, I guess. I mean, as Probably a lot of other things, but at least I can pray for you. You should take that off the bottom of how you feel it's the worst and all the other things and switch it back up to the top and realize that it's literally the best thing that you can do for them. Among all the other things, the best thing that you can do for them is pray for them. 
Um, but also pray with them. But in regard to praying for them, I saw this as well just over the last, I guess, six weeks. Um, I don't know how many people told us that they were praying for us, but my guess is it would probably be into the hundreds, uh, maybe more. But man, there was a lot of people that would say this. And uh, in regard to it being like the best thing is because um, whenever we would say some specific things, like pray that Evangeline will learn to breathe better. And then we'd ask you to do that. Within a day or so, she would like spike up and be able to start breathing better. It's just amazing, right? And pray that Evangeline will learn to start eating. Send it out to people. And hundreds of people would be praying and all of a sudden it would start happening. And so it's real when we say like there's, prayer does things. It's not just a, uh, a way to say, hey, I really care about you. Um, it's, it's a real thing that happens that actually changes. Prayer literally changes things. So we, want, we don't want to just pin, send people positive thoughts and good vibes, right? That, that's fine. But it's better to say, I'm going to pray for you and then really pray for them, right? Because maybe you're guilty of this. I've certainly done this. Hey, I'm going to pray for you about that. And then like I never forget, I forget and I never do it, right? That's bad. But we shouldn't do that. But also, um, the best thing that we can do is not just pray for each other, but pray with each other. Pray with each other. And here at Remedy, uh, you have at least two places uh, if not, you could create many more on your own. At least two places that you can do this continually, which are in community groups and in corporate prayer each month. As a matter of fact, we just so happen to have one this coming Wednesday that we would love for you to come here in this room and let's pray with each other. Pray with each other about things that are going on in our lives. So that's the third thing we see is that Christian friendships um, are embodied by continually praying for each other. And last one is this, as we can see, uh, as Paul's here in Caesarea and this Agabus, it's interesting. Um, as we go into verse 8, it says, On the next day we departed, came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Still at it. This is some 20 years later from Acts chapter 8. I think it's 20 years later. He had left Jerusalem because of persecution and kind of went up the coastland. That's uh, not there. Went up the coastland to Caesarea, and he had planted himself in Caesarea, and he just continually evangelized. Had four daughters, never married. I don't know why. It's, it's, they put that... Um, but what we can see is that um, Philip did apparently continue to live out his life. I mean, there's really no mention after Acts 8 until here, and that's all it is. And so we just, maybe you can just be wondering, did Philip really follow Christ? Did he keep doing it? Well, Luke just kind of mentions it there in Acts, uh, Acts 21. Yeah, Philip kept following Christ. And even after that, um, he had a family legacy where he taught his, his children about Jesus. They grew in Christ. Look at this, all four of these, even though they're unmarried, they're they're. The kind of ladies that would uh, follow Christ, that God's gifted them in prophecy. And so um, we can see that God really did use Philip and use it in their lives as well. Now, some commentators said a couple things. Uh, One, that uh, all the information from Acts chapter 6 verses 8 that Luke got probably happened here. Because Luke wasn't present. We, we see the, the switch from they, 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 they to us, 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 where Luke joins the group, which is around Acts 12-ish or so, 13-ish, something like that. Um, and so there's some research that had to happen before he joined. And so those, that information from Acts chapter 6, verse 8, probably was given to him by Philip. So whenever they came here, Philip said, here's what happened whenever you write your, whenever you write your book. You know, you don't have to footnote me, but here's what happened. Six and eight are really me. So it could be that Phillips like really gave him the information here, right? But there's another thing here that one commentator, and I'm not really sure what it means, but I just thought it was interesting, right? So he points out that he has unmarried daughters. He points out that they prophesy. 
And then all of a sudden, instead of one of those daughters doing the prophecy, some dude Agabus comes up and he gives the prophecy. I, I, I just, I'm not sure why that's there. It says, while staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea uh, and did this. So it's just interesting that he points this out. And it says, in coming to us, he took Paul's belt. And this is what he says. He helps us understand, even though in chapter 20, verse 22, um, Paul says, uh, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained or uh, controlled or led by the Spirit to go, not knowing what's going to happen to me. He's, he's uh, obeying uh, the, the direction of God in, by the person of the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then here, there's this prophecy that's given to him uh, and coming to us. He took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man uh, who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, um, Paul realizes that obeying the Holy Spirit means he's going to go to Jerusalem and it also means suffering, being arrested for his faith, etc. Now, in a large kind of cool seminary way, if you're looking at the book of Luke and you're looking at the book of Acts, uh, there's, as you follow and trace the book of Luke, at Luke 9, 51, it says that Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem and obeyed all the way to go to Jerusalem. And so some commentators are saying that in the same way that in book one, where Luke is showing that Christ was the one who obeyed all the way to Jerusalem, and book two here in Acts, Paul, in a similar way, is obeying all the way to Jerusalem. Both mean death, but they're both willing to do it. Um, Maybe that's what's going on, but for sure what we know is that Paul has some serious decision-making to happen in his life as he's being told to go to Jerusalem, likely going to be, well, not likely, he's going to be arrested, and then we know that he's going to be shipped all the way back over really far over to Rome uh, and spend some time in Rome before he's killed. And so, but there's a prophecy here that he's going to be arrested. His friends love him, and his friends are concerned. And they, we heard this. We and the people urged him, urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered. So they have conversation. We think this. Now, Luke summarizes it. I don't think it's just like, hey, don't go. Hey, don't worry about it. I'll be fine. Okay. I don't think it's just like a, a, they say something, Paul says something, it's over, right? I think that it's, they say something, Paul says something. They say something, Paul says something. And Luke's condensing it down to we urged him and eventually after all of our conversation that we had he, you're weeping you're breaking my heart what do you mean and he has this little summary statement at the end of 13 very similar to 2024 this is what he says for i am not for i am ready not only to be in prison but even to d- d- die in jerusalem for the name of the lord jesus just keep that in your head for i if you underline in your Bible, that's a good one. For I am not only ready to be in prison, but even to, to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. In 2024, he says something similar. Uh, he says, but I do not account of my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of, to the grace of God, even if it means imprisonment or dying for Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's fine with me. But what we see here is this. Sticking in the thread of friendship. Christian friendship is demonstrated by discussing important life decisions. Christian friendship is demonstrated by discussing important life decisions. After Paul received the prophecy, they want to talk about it, and they explain to him, don't do this. We don't want you to do this. Take our advice. Don't go. But Paul, knowing from Acts 20, 27, the Holy Spirit's leading me, and I understand that you're concerned for my life. However, I got to obey the Lord. So here, Paul doesn't heed their advice. He doesn't heed their advice, but instead has a chance to 
to teach them about what the Lord's saying. Um, but nevertheless, they care and they want to show. Now, why would Paul do this? Uh, Oswald Chambers, I call him Uncle Oswald, but you know, whatever. Oswald Chambers, he's not my uncle. Uh, he says this, um, talking about uh, why Paul would be willing to die for Christ. To choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering who chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. So as believers in Christ, we just don't choose to suffer. But we know that we choose God's will, and if suffering comes in the midst of that, then like Paul, we resign ourselves to the will of the Lord. That's fine. So after discussing it, they say, verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. You can see it, uh, for I am not only ready to die, and and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. So you can tell that there's a lot back and forth because they tried to persuade him. And they say, let the will of the Lord be done. Now, this let the will of the Lord be done, Stott points out, is not some kind of feeble, snarky resignation. Then Let the will of the Lord be done then with you, Paul. It's not one of those. It's more like a positive prayer. Let the will of the Lord be done with you, Paul. So it's not like whatever. It's like, okay, the Lord's will with you then. We believe in God and his sovereignty, and we're trusting this. So as we've gone through this, um, which one of these four things are you seeing are, are, are ones that the Lord is pressing in on you? Practicing hospitality, having true affections, making sure you're praying with each other, or even when there's big life decisions happening that you're, that you're uh, discussing it with each other. Which one do you need to do this week in your community group? Which one do you need to go right now with someone in this body and say, hey, this one impressed upon me and I need to talk to you about it. Uh, Allow yourselves to grow in these things. Allow yourself to be a part of making this five to 10 year or 25 year chunk that you have here at Remedy be a time where you look back and you're like, wow, that person right there simmered up to the top to be a really significant person in my life that as I look back now, Man, that was a meaningful relationship. Praise God he put that person in my life. Praise God for the gospel that he made me a friend of Christ and then thereby brought that person in that we could be Christian friends. Now, um, I want to conclude with this. I want to conclude with this. Looking at Paul's life and these decisions that he's making, Tony Morita in his commentary draws out five kind of quick applications when we look at Paul, which is getting from Jerusalem, Miletus to Jerusalem, he says this, why Paul would be willing to die even at the hands of his assailants and and die for the gospel. And eventually he would as he was shipped to Rome and eventually was beheaded for the faith. He gives kind of quick five answers on why we should live in this kind of uh, way where we would also say, I'm not only ready to be in prison, you might not be in prison, but we can say, I'm even ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Why would we live like that? Paul, uh, Tony says, Marita says five things. One, we should love people, but we should love Jesus more. We should please Jesus, but we should, uh, we, we please Jesus over trying to please other people. Nothing's more valuable than Jesus in our life, and we should treasure him supremely. The next one, he says this, we should value input that people give us, but we should always follow God's will. We must have other Christians speak into our lives constantly and give us advice. However, we align their counsel with God's word and the leading of the Holy Spirit as well. The next one is this, that there's something worse than dying, and that's not living. There is something worse than dying, and that's not living. We don't waste our life. Instead, we pour it out for Christ. We pour it out for our friends that the Lord has brought into our lives and the good news of others. And we take calculated risks, not crazy risks, like 
We just don't, hey, I'm going to jump out of a plane. Like, calculated risk for the cause of Christ. And if that brings hardship, it does. There is something worse than dying, and it's not living. It sounds a little Braveheartish, but they just stole it from the Bible. Um, few men truly live. I can't do the Scottish accent. But anyway, uh, sorry, I shouldn't have even done that. We're going to take that off the podcast. Verse 4. All right, number 4. When you follow the Calvary Road, you're not alone and you won't regret it. If you remember in the Great Commission, Jesus says, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. When you follow the Calvary Road, you're not by yourself. Jesus has promised that he's with you the entire time, which means uh, our unfailing friend Christ, while we are following the family business of telling other people about Jesus, he's promised that he will be with us the entire time. And when we get to the end of the Calvary Road and go to heaven, we will never have regretted following him. Lastly, following Jesus is costly, but not following Jesus is more costly. The only thing that's more costly, he, Tony Marita says this, the only thing that's more costly than discipleship is the, the only thing that's more costly than the cost of discipleship is the cost of non-discipleship. Following Jesus brings joy later when we go to heaven. Not following him brings eternal suffering later. So that's why when we see this kind of amazing like statements that Paul makes, he's willing to say it because there has uh, eternal implications for us. Now we're going to go to a time of uh, the Lord's Supper and prayer. So Jordan can come on up and uh, I'm going to pray for us. And as we go into the Lord's Supper, this is a time where we celebrate this good news, this gospel, that we've been made a friend of God, that he has invited us into his family. And so since he's invited us into his family, we're invited into his table. uh, And we take the bread and we take the cup. And as we take these things, we remember that he gave his body and he shed his blood for us and he has called us his friend. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your love for us. As we go to the table now, God, we pray that um, we would experience the amazing uh, grace that you give. Though it's not salvific, there is grace in a way where we're reminded of this good news that you have given your life for us. You laid down your life for us in order to call us your friend. And now we can live our lives as friends of others, people, uh, gladly pouring out our lives for other people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.